Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Thank you for the honor to be to be here to be at the part of the Valley Bet Midrash program. It's very exciting. Let us start the discussion about the differences between the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi world, and through that reach the question of why are there no reform or conservative movements within the Sephardic world, meaning no official denominations. We're not talking about the way people practice, or right, but we don't have those official denominations. Let's start with, uh, with analyzing uh, liturgy, poetry, from the 12th century that I think really uh, highlights one of, the, uh, one of the crucial debates between the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi world. And even though that is a debate that took place almost a thousand years ago, it still affects those two uh, facets of Judaism today. And it teaches us something about the development in the past. So, interestingly enough, those two pieces of poetry, the, the Sephardic and the, the, the one written by a Sephardic poet and the one written by an Ashkenazi poet, are both used in the this, in this Sephardic liturgy. This is one of the rare cases of a Ashkenazi poetry that has been incorporated into the Sephardic Sidur. And the reason that it's rare is that the Sephardic and Ashkenazi poetry took different directions. And uh, even today, when for modern speaking, uh, modern Hebrew speakers, it would be hard to understand Ashkenazi poetry. They were very creative with inventing new forms and new verbs and new conjugations. And uh, the Sephardic poetry is more flowing and, and rhyming. So the Sephardim reluctantly adopted Ashkenazi literature into the Sidur. So those both pieces are read on Rosh Hashanah. One of them is read before blowing the shofar on the first day. Second one is read before blowing the shofar on the second day. But some people also read it during the Silihot. And they both revolve around the same topic, about the story of the Akedah. The Akedah, the binding of Yitzhak, is probably one of the most powerful and unnerving stories of the Torah. It also became a myth, a sort of, of a, a, uh, an aspiration for Jews, the idea of sacrificing yourself for God, willing to sacrifice your son. And when we read it in the Torah, when we read it today, I think, we ask the questions, is this what God wanted? What what would we do today if God would have told us to do that, right? Uh, a while ago, I got a, I got a question on a, 
it was a long time ago because it was what's called a, a, a mail list, a serve mail that, uh, you know, of Jewish educators in North America. And someone raised a question. He said, my son asked me, uh, Dad, what would you do if, uh, if God asked me you uh, to sacrifice me? <coughs> and, and the father said, the father said that he didn't know what to answer his child. And after a while, he said, God would never ask me to do that. And I answered on that, on that mail serve, I said that um, if I were that child, I would start sleeping with the gun under my pillow. <laughs> because because the, it's not really reassuring, you know, the father tells me that I, God would not ask me, don't worry. But if he would ask you, would you or not, that's the question. So there, there, are, there are several uh, protagonists in the story. The highlight with the center is on Abraham and it's Hawk. But there are also the two servants who go with them. And there's one protagonist that is completely missing from the story, but maybe is the main protagonist, and that is Sarah. Where is Sarah? Right? She's not mentioned. God speaks to Abraham, take your son, bring him as a sacrifice. What about Sarah? Is she not part of that, that business? Is she not the mother? She should be consulted before sacrificing her son. So she's hidden. She's not speaking. She's not consulted. Yitzhak also is silent. We only have from him one sentence. Where is the lamb? That's it. Nothing else. Did he say anything else? So let's, let's look at those two poems and see how the poets try to bring out those parts of the, of the dialogue, if, if at all. So the first one is called Oked Vani'ikad Vamizbeah. It's at the end of the, of the first paragraph, you'll see it in Hebrew, Oked Vani'ikad Vamizbeah. That's the title. Oked is the one who binds. Hani'ikad, the one who is bound. Mizbeah, the altar. Uh, part A, one in the end of the Hebrew, three words, Oked Vani'ikad Vamizbeah. Oked is the one who binds at Abraham. Hani'ikad, the one who is bound, is Yitzhak. And the altar. So we have the two people, the, the, the father and the son, the one who is going to kill, the one who is going to die, and the altar, which is uh, God, symbolizes the place of God. So those are the people who are working in, the, uh, uh, in that story. This poem was written by Rabbi Shmuel Yehuda ibn Abbas, that you could tell by the name there was Sephardic, right? Shemuel Yehuda ibn Abbas. It's the same word that gave its uh, name to the Abbasid uh, dynasty of the, of the Khalifa. And he was born uh, in Morocco, lived in Iraq, and in Syria in the 12th century. And here's the first, the first paragraph says this. Abraham told Sarah, your beloved one needs to be told the service of God. She said, go master, but do not go too far. Sorry for the typo. He answered, trust the Lord. In Hebrew, So he says, you know, the, it starts with a lie. Abraham tells Sarah, I need to take your son, your dear son, Hamudech, Hebrew, Hamudech, your beloved son, I need to take him away and teach him the, the, the ways of God. And what does she say? She says, go master, don't go too far. What does she mean by saying, don't go too far? Is it a premonition 
Is she warning him, just don't go crazy? Right? In other words, don't, don't do something that you're going to regret it eventually. Uh, but she, she's also asking, why do you have to go far to teach him the, the way of God? Can you do it here in the tent? And we realize that it's difficult for Sarah to let go of Yitzhak, a son that was born at an old age. She's hovering over him. She wouldn't let him out of her sight. And now Abraham says, I'm going to take this little kid, three, seven years old, 12 maybe, not older than that, not 37, according to the Midrashim, not that. Uh, so she says, go master, but don't go too far. But the, the already poet tells us that Abraham puts himself in a dilemma because he knows that Sarah would not accept it, yet he lies to her and he says, I have to go and teach him the ways of God. Okay. Um, in, in verse 1b here, he rose and left early with his two servants of the people of the false faith. And that's interesting because as we'll see later on in the uh, Ashkenazi poem, this is missing. Even though the Torah speaks about the two servants, the Ashkenazi poet did not want to mention them. They should not be part of the story. They're alienated, they're being pushed out. The Sephardic poet didn't have a problem with including other participants in the, in the, uh, uh, in the story. Even though he calls them the false, uh, the false faith, there's no faith at the time with this paganism, uh, but he wanted to be part of the story. There is interaction between Jews and non-Jews. For the Ashkenazi poet, there's no inter in interaction between Jews and non-Jews. Now, here Yitzhak is speaking, and he says, he speaks to, uh, with his father, and he says in, in 1c, Yitzhak said thus to his father, where my master is the lamb required by law? Have you forgotten your religion today? He says, I see the fire, I see the fire, I see the firewood, where is the lamb? This is, this is, so far, this is what the Torah says, right? But the poet adds one line. Where is the lamb that you have to do according to the law? Did you forget the law? Which law, which, which religion, which halakha is Yitzhak saying that his father forgot? Not the halakha that you, cannot bring, that, you can, that you have to bring a sacrifice, but the halakha that you should not kill a human being. Here the poet very subtly puts in Yitzhak's mouth a complaint to Avraham. What are you doing? Why are you going to perform that uh, human sacrifice? You're not allowed to do that. Dafku then in 1D, and there's only an excerpt from the poem, and I recommend reading the whole thing. They knocked on the gates. They want the gates of mercy to open. The son is about to be slaughtered, and the father is going to slaughter. That is a dramatic statement. We see the two sort of coming to the gates of heaven. The father knows what he's about to do, and they're knocking on the gates of mercy. One, why, why on the gates of mercy? Because maybe there will be a change of mind. Maybe God will change his mind and say, okay, I have mercy on you. Don't kill your son. It's okay, go back home. And then the next uh, paragraph here. He prepared the firewood and bound Yitzhak. In the Hebrew, it's be'on v'hail. On is a 
uh, is a word with a double meaning. It can mean strength, also can mean sorrow. So there's a wordplay there. He does it with great strength or with great sorrow. And as he's binding Yitzhak, daylight turned into night for them. Tears streaming with might, eyes bitterly cry, and a joyous heart. So here's Abraham's dilemma. He, on one hand, he wants to do what God told him to do. On the other hand, he feels that maybe he should not do that. He's crying and joyous at the same time. So it's not an easy... What? Continue, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, I'm just going to add that daylight turned into night has meaning as well. Mm-hmm. Daylight, right, daylight turned into night. It's the sun, the sunset. It's dark. It's darkness. I mean, doom is coming in a sense. Yes. Yes, darkness is a sense of the end, uh, fear, lack of direction, right? All these things are there. Um, and then verse 1f and 1g, in, in this, in this uh, uh, rendition, um, when it is sung in the synagogue, there are different traditions. In some, in some uh, synagogues, everybody sings it together. In some, uh, each congregate sings one verse. But when they get to these two, Everybody stops, and the cantor sings it with a very um, soulful, very mournful tune, because those are the two verses where Yitzhak speaks with his father. This is what we don't have in the biblical narrative. In the biblical narrative, Yitzhak speaks to his father only when he asks, where is the lamb? But here, Yitzhak also talks to his father before the actual act of the sacrifice. He says this, Tell my mother that her joy is lost. The son she had at the age of 90 has been consumed by knife and fire. How can I find her consolation? My heart goes out to my mother who will cry and weep. So Yitzhak is talking to Abraham and telling him, I feel so bad for mom. How can I console her? How can I give her comfort? And what he's saying is, Dad, you're going to kill me, and I'm going to be gone. But you are the one who will have to live with the consequences of the Akedah. You have to live with my mother day in and day out and tell her that you killed me. And how are you going to live with that? So he's trying to dissuade him, maybe from killing him, but also showing him what is it that he's about to do. And then he says, my words hum from the knife. It's the, the clause I could translate, the word yehemeh. In Hebrew, yehemeh is from a, a, a very emotional uh, heart. So I'm, I'm speaking to you with, a, with, a, uh, with that, that kind of uh, emotion. Uh, Sharpen it, Father. Tighten my bonds. When the fire consumes me, take my remnants. Give Sarah and tell her that this is Yitzhak's fragrance. So very, very painful words. He tells his father, put my ashes in a bag, take them back to my mother and say, this is what was left from Yitzhak. Or he's telling him, this is impossible, right? How can you do that? Okay. Can you imagine, right? If you're Abraham and Yitzhak tells you that, what are you going to do at that moment? You drop the knife, you fall to the ground, or your knees, you cry, you pray to God, please stop that. Uh, 
the, the way is, it is sung, by the way, if you want to hear the tune in the Sephardic community, uh, let's say that the previous pasuk would be uh, chanted like, some people sing it like that. Which is a little soulful, but also has some rhythm to it. But then the next one, Sihulaymi, when he says, tell my mother that her joy is lost, is chanted like that. This is really, when, when it is chanted in the synagogue, it, it puts people in the mood of really understanding what, what is happening there. So that is, the, that is the, the, just an excerpt from the way Rabbi Yehuda Shemuel ibn Abbas describe, uh, Shemuel Yehuda ibn Abbas describes the Akedah. It's a confrontation between Avraham and Yitzhak. It's not easy. Avraham struggles with his emotions, with his faith. He doesn't know how to break the news to Sarah. It's, it's a complicated story. And there's an end to the story. In the in the historical context of the of the poet, but we'll get back to it. So, the second uh, poem here was written by Rabbi Ephraim ben Isaac of Regensburg, Germany, in the 12th century. He is a. This is one of his milder poems about the Akedah, because he wrote other poems about the Akedah, and that came from a personal experience direct and indirect of the community, the communities that were devastated during the Crusades, where people were killed by the, uh, by the Crusaders, and in many cases, killed themselves. And in some cases, slaughtered their children in order to prevent their children from falling into the hand of the Crusaders or converting their religion converting them into, the, into Christianity, they slaughtered their own children. That, uh, that uh, theme came up a couple of decades ago in Israel, where uh, when a, a historian, Israel Yuval, suggested a theory that because of those acts of the, of the Jews in Europe, there was more anti-Semitism in the next waves of the Crusades because people were shocked the, the, the local population, there was a difference between the crusaders who were largely a riffraff, many of them who had no, uh, no means of income and work in Europe and were encouraged by the pope and the king as a way to just push them out of, Israel, out of Europe into Israel for a holy war. Um, and then themselves were decimated on the way and that of the local population, which in, in some cases wanted to help the Jews. And when they saw that the Jews were so uh, violent toward their own children, they could not fathom that. And they started developing myths about the, the, you know, the blood libel, etc. That created a, uh, a major debate in Israel among historians because up until that point, the, uh, the willingness of the Jews to sacrifice their lives during the Crusades and that of the children was considered as the most heroic act that can ever be imagined. So now we look at the poem of Rabbi Ephraim of Regensburg written in the 12th century, shortly after the Crusades. And here also, only just some excerpt from it. 
when the command is given to Abraham, it is written in that manner. Take your beloved son and let his blood be extracted on the wall. This is taken from the description of the korbanot, of the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. When one brings a, uh, uh, a sacrifice of turtle doves, the bird should be slaughtered and the blood should be sprinkled on, on the altar. To take those words and use them graphically to describe the slaughtering of a human being is pretty uh, harsh. I'll skip 1b, I'll go back to it later. 1c. That's only uh, some words of each, each phrase where I wanted to highlight how the poet speaks about the, the speed and the way that everything is done with uh, it's expeditiously, meticulously. Uh, the only one, Yitzhak, became light-footed as a deer. They did not second-guess you. They walked speedily. Expeditiously, they brought the wood and together with wholesome love prepared the ground. Again, sorry for the typo. Like uh, early in the morning, so uh, they are uh, they are very excited to do that, and they're working together with love, with 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 excitement. There's no no one second guesses God. No one questions why you're doing this to us. Why are you asking us to be? Not only that, like in one D, it's Hak speaks to Abraham, just like in the Sephardic poem. Here also. Yitzhak speaks to Avram moments before the act of the, of the sacrifice, and he says this, Father, slaughter me like a lamb. Have no mercy. Here is the child insisting that he must be slaughtered, telling Avram, have no, have no doubts. And why is that? He desires me. He wants me to expose my heart to him. So, and the last part of this uh, Verse is, If you will withhold me from him, he will take my soul anyway. That is sort of a determinism or fatalism, telling Abraham, I'm going to die no matter what. When God wants me, he will take me. So why wouldn't you give me to him when he asks for it? And... Uh, in 1e, he worked meticulously to place him on the wood. The fire was burning. Yitzhak willingly extended his neck and his father reached to him to slaughter him as an offering to his owner. Just like in the, uh, in the korbanot, when you bring a sacrifice, you have to do it for the sake of the owner of the korban. Now Yitzhak is described as a sacrifice which belongs to God and the slaughtering has to be done with the intention of I'm doing it for God's sake. It's all holy, it's all sacred part of your service of God. In Hebrew, it's also rhyme. So it gives the poem also kind of like a, I don't want to say happiness, but it's more like yeah. light going, not that heavy like this. It, it is, right. It's so, of course, in Hebrew, it all rhymes. Aviv nigash elav, l'shohato l'shem be'alav. Uh, and it's true. The, 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 it rhymes both in the in the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi poem, but but in general, the the rhythm or the the tempo, the meter of the Ashkenazi poem here is more uh, is faster and uh, allows for a different reading. The uh, it's interesting to note that according to some uh, interpretations that were later on. Uh, promulgated in the Ashkenazi literature, Abraham did slaughter Yitzhak. And 
God revived Yitzhak and Abraham said, what is going on here? I have to slaughter him again. And then God stopped him. Or according to another version, when Abraham is being told, don't slaughter, don't kill your son, he says, can I just make a little cut just to draw blood from him so I will fulfill the mitzvah of, of sacrifice? Where does it come from? Where does it come from? So let's go back to 1, to 1b. He ran to the lead to sanctify him. Again, he's running, he's doing it with speed to sanctify him. It's, it doesn't think of it according to, to this uh, description as, as a as a dilemma, as a problem, as something that's hard to do, but rather it's, 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 it's an amazing uh, merit, it's an amazing opportunity to do something holy. And the, this he did, though their souls were bound together. He crowned him with the woods, and the fire was the divine crown on his head. So now the boy, Yitzhak, is described as wearing two crowns, one is a crown made of wood. The other one is a crown of fire. Does it bring, does it conjure any images? Right? Two different images of, of Jesus or the saints. One with a crown of thorns and the other one with a halo, with a fiery glowing halo. And I've been learning this point for a while and it hit me only a couple of years ago that this, 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 uh, these six words, five words, that they're talking about the crown, the divine crown on his head, have, uh, they, they convey the visual, the, the Christian imagery of the churches, of the icons, of, of, of mosaics, whatever uh, we can associate with that. Um, and that is really the, we could say one of the, the rift lines between the Ashkenazi and the Sephardic culture, which were a product of where those cultures were born. Because up until the 7th or 8th century, there was no such thing as a Sephardic or Ashkenazi. Most of the Jewish world was a Mediterranean world. It was the Middle East, North Africa, uh, Greece, Rome. They were all countries that were around the Mediterranean Sea or the Middle East. They were... Um, under different influences of, in terms of culture and religion, but they were all part of the, of the Middle East or the Mediterranean. In the 7th or 8th, uh, sorry, the 8th or 9th century, around that time, Jews started coming to Germany. They are being brought over by the Bishop of Köln to sit there and to, to dwell there and to boost the economy. And, uh, and, and that is where we find the, uh, the departure from what we could call the Sephardic mentality. Now, the, to, if, you, if you're a purist, you say, wait a second, Sephardic, Sepharad, means Spain. And that means that only someone who was born or raised in Spain or come from the descendants of the Moranos could call himself Sephardic. That is if we only look at the geographic location. But when we talk, we talk about the theology or the ideology of Sephardic versus Ashkenazi, we're talking about the larger picture. Just as we say Ashkenaz, to denote everything, all, all Jews that came from Europe, Western and Eastern Europe, in general, they're called, when we speak about the literature or the halakha, it's Ashkenazi. And we're not being particular to say that Ashkenazi means only Germany in Hebrew. So what is Sephardic? Sephardic is, and we'll see within, in the next sections, Sephardic is 
a, the continuous culture that started in Babylonia after the, after the Talmud, in the time of the Geonim, the heads of the yeshiva in Babylonia, and there it continued till the 11th, 12th century. Parallel to that, there's a flourishing in, uh, in Spain of the Jewish communities after the uh, Muslim invasion in the 8th century. Babel, Iraq. Babel, Iraq, but also under the Persian influence. All that happens under the, uh, the, Muslim, the Muslim influence. It continues in Spain up until the 1500s under both Muslim and Christian influence that after the Reconquista. But in general, if you start, from the, if you start counting from the time of the beginning of the period of the Geonim in the, in the 5th or in the 6th century, Till the 15th century, you have almost a thousand years of a, of a continuous ideology that uh, that developed under Islam, and that in general was more broad horizon and open-minded. And that is the culture that we call Sephardim. Even after the Sephardim of Spain left Spain and went to different uh, different uh, destinations, they carried with them this culture, and it reconnected to the legacy of the Goanim that was already in the Mediterranean. Now, when, the, when, Ashkenaz, when Jews arrived from Italy to Germany, they had to live now with a new reality. Although Italy was also a Christian country, but uh, Gothic Germany of the, the, of the 9th century was not a place that was very welcoming to anyone from the outside, let alone a Jew. Jews come to, uh, to Germany and they are now assaulted by, by the images they see. On, on the churches, there are the images of the synagogue and the ecclesia, the, the synagogue, the Jews, the ecclesia, the church, Christianity. The Christianity is depicted as victorious. Judaism is defeated. The, the Jews are rejected by God. That is the theology. Those are, those are, this, they are the nation that God rejected and abandoned. They are the killers of God. They were at a, at a certain point demonized by the uh, by the clergy, and that affected the population. And the reaction of the Jews to that assault on their religion and their beliefs and their self confidence was to shut themselves in from outside influences. That was the safest thing to do because there was no way they could cope with the culture around them. So instead of Facing it head on, they recoiled and erected walls around them. They sometimes be physical walls, but there are definitely spiritual walls and mental walls, saying that religion, those practices, those beliefs are repugnant. They're not part of us. However, at the same time, what happened was that Jews started developing sort of it's you could call it a hate-love relationship or more an inferiority complex because they see that the Christian religion is powerful, is dominant, and it prides itself for dedication to God to such an extent that people are willing to sacrifice their lives for their faith. First and foremost, through the crucifixion. When you see it everywhere, and you realize that the, the core of the religion is around dying, the God himself dying, right, or dying for humanity, and then the martyrs, the martyrs that turn saints and become those who, uh, who die for God. So Jews ask themselves, how come we don't do this for God? 
we have to do it as well. And that's where we come to that, uh, that's how we come to this interpretation of the Akedah as it did happen. When that commentator said that Avraham did kill Yitzhak, because he had to answer the Christian who said, you see, you weren't able even to do that. When uh, another interpreter said that Sarah died when she heard that Yitzhak was not, uh, when she heard about the Akedah, not because she thought that he died, but rather because she said, how come that God did not accept my, uh, my sacrifice? So she basically committed suicide to offer herself instead of her son. So that is a mentality that is a result of the culture. That mar- martyrdom was, was praised. It was, it was the most important element in the, in the culture, in the religion, and Jews imitated that. So two things happened there. On one hand, martyrdom was promoted, was considered an important thing. And on the other hand, Jews shut themselves from any outside influence. And remember, the outside influence beside religion, there's not much. Those are the dark ages in Europe. Meanwhile, in the Muslim world, those are the golden, uh, the golden days, the golden age. Th- these are the days under the Geonim in Babylonia, in Iraq, where Muslim and Jewish scholars translate the, the works of Greek scientists, Greek philosophers, <coughs> from Greek to Arabic. They were the one who preserved it for the Renaissance. It was preserved through the Arabic. The... Uh, the Arabs promoted poetry and culture and language. And the Jews in, in Spain and in Iraq were also under a kind of assault, and the assault was our culture is superior. And the Arabs specifically spoke about poetry. They said the only language in which you could write beautiful poetry is Arabic. No other language could compare to it. And as I say, Arabic is a beautiful language. Uh, and, and it rhymes well also. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. However, the Jews, the way they reacted to it was not to shut themselves in and say, okay, from now on, no observant Jew is allowed to read poetry, whether in Arabic or in Hebrew which would be the reaction of Orthodox Judaism today. Nice music, don't listen to it. The internet, turn it off. Uh, technology, forget about it because we're not, it, it might, it might uh, damage our values. That doesn't help. When you, when you erect a wall around you, you protect yourself, but there's no immune system. Just as in medicine. Then if there's an infection, it takes over everything. What the Jews in Spain did, they said, we will create poetry in Hebrew and we will compete with you on your own turf. Now, that, that is where a cultural shock should have taken place and it didn't. Because a cultural shock happens when you shut yourself from the outside culture and then you're exposed to it at once. That is what happens to children in Orthodox communities who grew up being told that television is horrible and, you know, and the internet is horrible and, you know, the, all, everything outside is, is, is terrible. And then maybe if they live in New York City, they will see, then they go to the city, they will see it on the walls, you know, everywhere. And they watch a movie and they say to themselves, wait, my, my, my parents said that this is horrible, but it's beautiful. So either they're stupid or they're, or they're lying. And then everything, everything comes, up, everything comes apart. So, uh, 
the, the Ashkenazi community managed to keep the walls of the ghetto sort of intact for hundreds of years because there were always persecutions, because there were, uh, were, were always this animosity towards Christianity. Even when, even when the Jewish legislator said, we could work with Christianity when it comes to business, etc., in their, in their religious writing, they despised the religion. Very, very harsh words written about Christianity. So as a result, when emancipation, enlightenment came in the 17th, 18th century, the cultural shock was immense. There was, there was no defense mechanism. There was no immune system. At the same time, because the rabbis were not prepared for to deal with it, any, anyone who thought differently or wanted to change even, this, even the, the tiniest detail was, was pushed outside the wall. A heretic. It was, that person would be ostracized. So after a while, there were enough people outside the wall to form their own, you know, whether it's the, the, the physical or virtual wall, to form their own society. Okay, we are all the, the rejects. Let's create our own movement. Uh, let, let's be our own, our own people. Uh, in, the, in the Sephardic world, that, that process happened gradually. The cultural shock didn't happen because the cultural exposure already took place between the 7th and the 12th century. And the, the Geonim already promoted the idea that the curriculum should include language, math, music, uh, public speaking, the, uh, the uh, uh, inter- interaction with the non-Jewish community. Later on, historians blamed Sephardic Jews. They, say, they said that it's shameful that Sephardic Jews converted the Jews of Spain under the pressure of the Inquisition and the, the decree of the Catholic kings. Some of them decided to convert to Judaism or to, fled, to flee instead of, of stay there and die for their religion. What good would have come out of that? We would have lost another, would have lost another 100,000, 200,000 Jews. Instead, they left. They survived. Some of them remained as converts and are now seeking to come back as Maranos, Conversos, Crypto Jews, Chuetas, you know, whatever, whatever we call them. But they're alive. And their culture affected the, the Spanish culture and the cultures around them. So that is, uh, that is one element when we ask why, why are there no reform and conservative movements in, in the Sephardic world? One element is that it really has to do with a long, long history of evolution under, under the crescent and the cross, under Islam and Christianity in different, uh, different uh, circumstances. Could have been the exact opposite. If the Jews, if you take the Jews from this side of the world and you put them in this side of the world, they, they, it would happen. It's, it's not about who went there, but what were their circumstances. The second is, as I said, the, because walls were erected, people were pushed outside the walls and there was no willingness, uh, there was no uh, willingness to be more flexible, especially during the Enlightenment. This is where the, the phrase was coined, hadash asu min Torah, any, any uh, innovation is forbidden by the law of the Torah. Hatam Sofer said that, right, Rabbi Moshe of Pressburg in the, in the 18th century. Um, another, uh, another element that is brought up by, by historians and scholars is that in Ashkenazi uh, communities, especially 
from the 16th century in Eastern Europe, in Lithuania, uh, the, uh, the role of the rabbi was that of a scholar. Rabbis were, uh, were appointed based on their ability to deliver a lecture that would leave everyone dumbfounded. And, and local rabbis would wait there for, for that lecture to try to, to trip the rabbi, to try to prove him wrong. There was a bad, it's like, the, you know, in other words, academia. Right? <laughs> You're a lot of academics here, right? So this is the same thing. It's, it's the battle of who's a, who's a better researcher, who's a, who's a more brilliant mind. And once the rabbi was, was appointed, he would get a study. He would sit there and learn and write and teach, sometimes judge in certain financial uh, uh, disputes, but was not very much involved in the daily life of the community. In Sephardic communities, on the other hand, the rabbi was involved in all aspects of Jewish life. He would be the shohet, he would be the mohel, he would be the teacher. Uh, he would walk around and enter and into a house to see what's going on. Um, he, that, that is something also that Hasidut uh, brought back. But what, uh, what that created was that the rabbis were able in the Sephardic world to gradually, to see the gradual changes in society. The rabbis was closing the study just like in his own spiritual ghetto. He's there for a month or two. Then he comes out and you see that the community has changed. Oh, what, what is going on? I didn't know that happened. But a, a rabbi who's with the community day on a daily basis realizes that there are changes that have to be, uh, that have to be addressed. And that is something that, again, that uh, created a difference between the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi communities. Um, I put together sort of uh, the Ten Commandments of the, of the Sephardic rabbis, and that is based on research and what I learned from books and uh, from my grandfather also, who came from a line of uh, ten generations of rabbis and warned me very strongly not to become a rabbi. Uh, <laughs> he said, I think he meant don't be a pulpit rabbi. Be, be, be uh, more activist and involved with the people, which I'm trying to do. So th those are, uh, I'll go over them briefly. He says, one is no Tanakh. In the Sephardic world, the importance of knowing the, what is called you have to know the 24 books of Tanakh. There, um, uh, you have to know it by heart. You have to, do, to know the right vowels. I used to study Tanakh with my, my grandfather every Shabbat. And every year we would finish the whole Tanakh. He would correct me by heart, would ask me questions, philosophical questions. We mean, there was, you read... Not only the Torah, but also the book of Job, the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs, the book of Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. And you, you realize that there are amazing things in the Torah that you have to open yourself to. On the other hand, in the Ashkenazi world, if not, not everywhere, there were of course exceptions on both sides, but you would reach a verse from the Torah only if it was by chance quoted in the Talmud. The Talmud became the main source for the Torah. It happened to me more than once when I was in yeshiva that my rabbi would start a, uh, in his sermon, in his, his class, started to quote a, a verse and then get stuck in the middle. Because, and he would turn to me to finish it for him because you know that I, we, could, we could do that. Knowledge of history, it is because of their more, the scientific tendency of the Sephardic rabbis up until the 17th century, uh, they also were very keen on understanding history. The historical 
uh, knowledge is important to the understanding of halakha. You cannot understand today's halakha without yesterday's history. No matter what you do, we need to know history for everything, for context, for right the, the social context, the seat in life. Uh, when I teach history, I, I ask my student, when do you use history in everyday life? And he starts saying, you know, the calendar, the, uh, the creation, like the, the Jewish, uh, I said, no, in your everyday life. Is it, when you go to a doctor, the first question a doctor would ask, family history, right? You cannot analyze, you cannot diagnose a situation without knowing the symptoms, even with the symptoms, without knowing the history that, that led to it. So history is important. Rabbi Misas, who was one of my, my heroes in the Sephardic world, lived in, uh, was born in the, in the late 1800s and passed away in 1974, uh, uh, once wrote a, uh, a review of a book that was printed by the grandchildren of a no, very famous Moroccan rabbi, Rabbi Tzhak ben Walid. And he said that what bothered him with the introduction to the book was that the grandchildren of the author wrote many stories about the grandfather, how he was such a righteous man, and the miracles that he performed. But he says, two things are missing. Where did he live and when? Amazing. He says, I cannot fully understand the halakha, the legal decisions of a certain rabbi without knowing his time and place. It's no, if, 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 if a... Uh, if a ruling was issued in Syria in the 12th century, Germany 17th century, or Israel 2nd century, it is not the same thing. Rules of fire, handling fire on Shabbat, that were created in the time of the Mishnah, where all houses were made of stone and stood apart from each other and had wide openings and, and skylight, and there was nothing in the house to burn anyway because people had uh, 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 one mat maybe, it's not the same, there are not the same rules that apply to Europe in the 12th, 13th century where all the houses are made of wood and stuck to each other. And that is where the halakha did change. But the rabbis were reluctant to admit that that is the reason for the change. They found another uh, argument because we can't say up front, they did not anticipate that. So, uh, but you have to know history. Uh, and that's why it follows from that. It's also colder in Europe, so you need more fire more frequently, right? Um, cherish general studies, cherish work. That used to be also part of the Ashkenazi world and it started disappearing in the uh, 17th, 18th century. The myth that you have to study around the clock and not work, that's a relatively new thing and I think part of the, that uh, closure that we don't want to have anything to do with the outside world. Res Whatever, no, no, men, women work today, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know very well. Um, yeah. Lakewood also, right? It's, uh, the, the, they should switch the ketubah around to write, you know, the, the woman promises the husband that she will work and, and provide and sustain, etc. Um, the respect for all human beings. It's, it's also in... Uh, Definitely part of Ashkenazi halakha. I'm not saying that it's only that, but it's more, it's stronger in Sephardic halakha because of the understanding that the rabbi had for the community. There are other examples here that I encourage you to read. I didn't, wouldn't have time to go over them today. But one, one interesting example is that of a, of a case of, a, of an adulterer who came to the rabbi years after the, he had uh, an affair with a married woman. 
Um, and that woman already, you know, had children, grandchildren, and he confessed to the rabbis, to the rabbi for what he did. And the question now was, should the rabbi tell the, the husband of the adulteress that something like that happened because according to the law, they should get divorced. And the rabbi, in this case, Rabbi Yosef Hayim of Baghdad of, in the, in the uh, uh, 19th century said, I mean, here it's obvious that the, the affair was not going on anymore. It was something of the past. Because if it was going on, it's a different question. He said, if I, if I tell the husband what happened and if I initiate a divorce, it will destroy the family. It will destroy the family. It will uh, embarrass the children. There's no way that we could do that. So I have to find a halachic solution that will allow me not to release that information. Meaning he first shot the arrow and then he drew the bull's eye. He decided this is my, this is my goal. A similar question was presented to Rabbi Heskelanda in Prague in the 18th century. And he said, the law is the law. We're going to tell the husband. He didn't care the, of the repercussions, about the repercussions. This is something that um, in my conversation with Rav Shmuley before, we brought up the, the idea of meta halakha. Today, it's a common term. People like to speak about meta halakha, like the extra halakhic uh, factors, that the, the factors that do not relate directly to halakha. In the Sephardic world, there's no such thing. I mean, again, not all rabbis, but in the, in the leading uh, ideology of the Sephardic world up to the 20th century, 20th century was tumultuous and, and there were many factors that changed that and maybe uh, I would say even obliterated the traditional Sephardic halakha. One of them is the rise of the Lithuanian yeshivot in Israel. The other one was the approach of Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, that many, the former chief rabbi of Israel, that many people think that he represents Sephardic halakha, but it's, it's not accurate. However, the, uh, in Sephardic halakha, it was not so. In Sephardic halakha, the idea was Everything is part of halakha. Emotions, uh, marital, marital harmony, um, what will people think of you and what will you think of yourself? In one example that I know from my grandfather, um, at the, in, uh, in Yerushalayim, when he lived in Yerushalayim, uh, a young girl came to him with, uh, with an egg, an egg in a plate that was a drop of, of blood in the egg that according to halakha, if, if there's blood in the egg, you have to throw it out. Um, today, I mean, if you don't buy organic, you don't have a problem because those, they're not fertile eggs. But she came with, with that plate, and the question that he asked her was, where do you live? She told him where she lives. He says, it's okay, it's kosher, go home. So he relied on the, on the opinion of halakha that said that it's kosher because there is such an opinion. But why did he ask her, where, where do you live? She needed it, right. When she told him she lived about 10, 12 minutes away, he realizes if the mother sent the girl with one egg, That's right, 12 minutes back, 12 minutes, right? She needs it. That is not meta halakha. That's part of it. Um, so that is also number seven. Be flexible and understand uh, changing reality. That is a statement that is mentioned. The Torah was not given to angels. The Torah was given to humans. One place where the rabbis use it, um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting Rabbi Misas, and that is something that came up recently about kashrut of restaurants, is about the, the great fear of finding bugs in your food. Right? 
uh, the people go with the, use, uh, you know, magnifying glasses, hold it to the light. Uh, now, microscopes, who knows, next thing it will be the uh, accelerator, you know, the, <laughs> the, 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 the neutrino accelerator to find if there are anything, any living uh, uh, organisms there. Rabbi Mishnah said very clearly, the Torah was not given to angels, meaning the Torah was not given to humans with magnifying glasses, with machines. The Torah says, don't eat bugs, meaning don't go and deliberately put bugs in your mouth. If you ate, uh, you know, you had lettuce, salad, whatever you ate, and you washed it, and you did whatever you could, and some protein remained there, it's okay. You know, nothing, nothing bad happened. But that, that is an element that was used in halakha. Uh, have concern for the well-being of the world and mankind. That was all, used to be important to everyone, that to realize that that is also part of uh, to protect and to cultivate. That was the first mitzvah that was given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Um, accept the truth, no matter what is the source. This is, that was coined by Maimonides. And Maimonides says, if someone said something which is true, which includes scientific knowledge, academic knowledge, historical uh, evidence, uh, geological, uh, uh, archaeological uh, excavations, we have to accept it, right? Maimonides himself, I believe, if he would come back to life today, would have ruled differently on many of the halachot that he ruled uh, uh, in the past. And finally, uh, assume responsibility for your actions. And that is, that in Hebrew, do not hide behind the Torah. That is also, even in the Ashkenazi world, is a relatively new concept of the last 200, 250 years, was a result of the uh, attempt of Agudat Israel to, uh, to enter the same, the the Senate in Poland, and they created this idea of Da Torah, the Torah ideology that could be only um, presented and promoted by, by the, uh, the great rabbis. And unfortunately today, you have you, uh, many Orthodox Jews are in that mentality that only if the rabbis approve of it, only if the, of the, if the leader of the generation says it, it's true. If not, I cannot do it. And I have to ask the rabbi, about each and every action uh, that I take. Whereas in the past it was the rabbis would try to teach people to assume responsibility and to be knowledgeable enough to be able to make their own decisions. Um, I encourage you to read the rest of it and you know you can send me questions by email through uh, Rav, Rav Shmuley and the value of Midrash but I want to highlight one, one last point and that is that um, I was not aware until several years ago of the existence of any reform or conservative communities, official such communities, in the, in the Sephardic world. But a while ago, I came upon the first one that I heard was about maybe 10, 15 years ago that I learned of the first one. And last year, I learned of the second one, and they both proved my theory which is that the more fanatic you are, the greater are the chances that there will be a breakaway community that will say that we need a completely different way, that people would call it reform or conservative, whatever uh, the denomination that they will choose for themselves. The, the first was in, 18, in the 1850s, there was the first attempt to create a, a reform community in the Sephardic world. That was in Aleppo. It was by Rabbi Rafael Katzin. He uh, 
He was well, uh, well read, well traveled. He went to Iraq, to Syria, to Europe, and back. And when he came to Aleppo, he felt that there's a need to create a different kind of community. And there were enough people there who wanted to join him. But there were also, unfortunately, enough rabbis who went to war against him. And he lost the war. And after he passed away, they, uh, his history was erased. They basically claimed that he, went, he was mentally ill and that, uh, or maybe possessed by demons. And, uh, and that was the end of the story. But it was interesting that of all the communities in the Middle East, it happened in Aleppo because in Syria, between Aleppo and Damascus, Aleppo was the more conservative one, whereas Damascus were the cosmopolitan city. Baghdad was more uh, cosmopolitan. In a community where the rabbis had this more uh, closed-minded tendency, this is where a community they evolved. And I just recently heard last year that something similar is happening in Panama. In, in South America, there are several uh, clusters of uh, the communities of Syrian, mainly Syrian Jews, but uh, also Turkish Jews. They're actually called in some places in South America, Turcos. All the, all the Spanish, all the Sephardic Jews are called Turcos. All the Ashkenazi are called Polacos. Because the first one were from Turkey and Poland, so they came Turcos and Polacos. Um, and I just heard that in Panama, there is now, I don't know if it's, an, if it's active or there's a push to do, to have a reformed community. And that in Panama, for years, have been, has been controlled by one rabbi who was very, very uh, controlling and, and, and holding a tight lid in the community. So it proves the point that in the past, Sephardim didn't have it because they were flexible. Currently, the, the uh, flexibility and the innovation of the, of the Sephardim, the great Sephardic rabbis of the past has been has been lost, um, I would say, maybe until recently. Now we see a reawakening, and I think that it's something that should apply not only to the Sephardic community, but to the Ashkenazi community, to everyone. There is a great richness and wealth in our sources that we could pull out. We have to be able to recognize the good and the bad, but when we, uh, when we, confront, when we uh, face serious problems, which we still have in the, in the Jewish world, in terms of observance, we have to find real solutions. And I'm saying that as someone who worked, I worked with non-denominational uh, uh, movement, I worked with not only with the, uh, within the denominational world for many, many years. I've been teaching at the AGR Academy for, Academy for Jewish Religion in California for the last... Uh, 16 years and rabbis from all denominations and I work with people from all uh, all denominations and I came to the realization that we cannot live none of us not the orthodox the modern orthodox liberal orthodox open orthodox flexidox proctidox whatever you call it uh, you know and liberal etc none of us could 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 uh, could say uh, it doesn't bother me because in our families in our communities there was always someone who will be affected. And uh, what affects one, one Jew affects another. There are things that cross the lines, whether it's women's issues or aguna, the, 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 the women who would not get a divorce. 
it affects someone. And it's good to work together and to try to find solutions for the real problems. So uh, uh, with that, I will end and uh, we'll open the, the floor for questions. Thank you. Yes. The Ten Commandments. The absence of the Talmud yeah. is striking. Is that because it's number 11 or because it's just not very important? Hmm. No, it's the, the, the Torah was for a while more important. I'll read the question. The question was, why didn't I, didn't I mention the Talmud? That's, that's an interesting question because the Talmud today is, um, is seen as the most important book in the, in the Orthodox world and also in the conservative world. Um, that I'm from, from my friends who study the JTS, that you know, it's important to know Talmud. Um, and it was not always the case in the Sephardic world. The, the Kohanim of Babel added and changed the added to and changed the Talmud, and in the 10th century, Rabbi Tzadok Alfasi, the Rif who lived in uh, they called him the Rif after the city of Fez, Rabbi Tzadok Alfasi, but he really lived in Qalat Hamad in Algeria most of his life. Um, he. He basically wrote an abbreviated version of the Talmud, right? Il Chotra Vilfas, where he cleaned from the Talmud all the unnecessary discussions, the, the uh, non-halachic, the, the assumptions. And that was studied in the Sephardic Yeshivot for several hundred years until the influence of the, the Tosafot, the commentators of the Talmud from Germany, came uh, to Spain uh, through the Ramban, through Moshe ben Ahmad. And we could say also, the Maimonides, when he wrote his book of Halakha, he said, now that you have my Mishneh Torah, my book of Halakha, you will need no other book. You start from the Torah, you go to my Mishneh Torah. So he cut the Talmud off. The uh, Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Yosef Karo, also saw his book as the main, uh, as the main source of learning, though he... he uh, used the main uh, discussions in the Talmud in his commentary to Bet Yosef. So yeah, I would, and I personally, well, even though my, you know, my, my, my beer is in Talmud and, and I love studying Talmud, I think that the, uh, it is more important for us to teach in, in, uh, in Jewish day schools and in communities to teach the source of Judaism in a way which is relevant and which is uh, also historical. Instead of focusing on one book in one period, take a, a, a theme and follow it from its roots to its to fruition. Yes. Um, a couple of questions. First of all, if this is your theory about the reform in the Sephardic, and let, let me tell you a different idea. Tell me what you think about it. That in the Ashkenazi world, in Europe, there was the nationalism that also happened to Christianity, Christianity and the Ashkenazi Jews did an antipatia and yeah. became all, you know, went to university and so on yeah. and so on. And then they needed something to bridge between their Judaism yeah. and their secular, and that's kind of what... No, but I refer to that. I, I mentioned that. That's what I... It's just like something that is like really radical, so we're going to do something. No, no, but, but I refer to that. I said that's, that is the cultural shock for the people who went through emancipation, through enlightenment, they, uh, they felt that it's either or. And I, I, I will add to that, 
in the Ashkenazi world, uh, from that time on, it was an either or, uh, the dichotomy, either you're a Jew, you're observant, or you're not. No, no, I mean, that's in the world of today. Now there's a little big blending of, even, even in, the, in the Haredi world of today, it's, it's all or nothing. In the Sephardic world, meaning it's all or nothing. If, if, you're, not, if you're not Shomer Shabbat, don't come to the synagogue on Shabbat, right? In, in the Sephardic world, you went, you came to the synagogue, then you, then you went to, to, to uh, you know, you took... The... But, but what I'm saying that in the Sephardic world, in the Islam world, there wasn't really Jews went to university. And, I was, and so you, I said that in the Sephardic world it happened already in the 5th century, 6th century. The first, the first university in the world, the first university in the world was built in Morocco, in Fez, in the 9th century by a woman. <laughs> so, you know, the, this is something that we don't know, but that's why I said that in the, in the Sephardic world, it's part of the Arabic world. The Arabic world is the one that's translated all the academic, uh, whatever was there academic, uh, of the of the of the of the of the Greek world to Arabic. So it, the the Sephardim were enlightened w- before the Ashkenazi world. But in one exception, the Sephardim in that time of the world in Europe as well was the light of God, by the light of God. All everything they learned secular, it was. By the assumption there is a God and everything is by God. What happened in the 1500s, it started, uh, people started to question that. And there was like, uh, I don't know, it's atheists, but they went no, to... It's not atheists. Okay, it's, it's more complicated than that. Well, let me, okay. I, need the, and the, I will talk more about it later. And, and the second thing that yeah. I want to ask, if this is the... Like, why there, if, this, if this is the theory, there should be in Israel a big reform and conservative movement, and there isn't. So if Israel is not fanatic. Israel, Israel, the in Israel, the, the difference in Israel is that uh, the difference in Israel is that you have a Jewish identity without necessarily being observant or identified. You go to the army, you're part of the Israeli uh, society. That that is enough. But even in Israel, there's a, there's a process um, that is happening of uh, pushing. To the to, you know to the extremes, and there is, uh, I'll tell you, a couple of years ago I took a mission to Israel and we met with the uh, with the de- deputy minister of religion Eliyahu Ben Dahan, and one of one of the members of my of my uh, delegation who uh, was Haredi and became a conservative rabbi uh, after being ousted because he came out. It's a long story. So uh, and he, he knew Eli Ben Dahan personally, and he asked him about that. He says, "Why are you dealing? Why are you treating?" The, 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 the ministry of religions, why are you de- treating the reform and conservative movement the way you do? Why can't you come to an understanding, recognition? And he answers, listen, we have 11,000 synagogues in Israel and only 50 of them are non-Orthodox, reform and conservative, right? Uh, so they should know that we are, you know, we have the truth. Um, and here is where history comes into the picture. I was listening to him. I was born in Yerushalayim, and when I was a kid, there was one reform synagogue, the HUC, and one conservative synagogue in Rehova uh, Gron. That is. So now we have 50. So instead of saying, we have 11,000, you only have 50, think about it, there is a change. Now it comes trickling in. What will happen in 100 years? In 100 years, the balance will be different. And that's what they're not thinking about. And, and yes. 
Does the burning hold uh, Maimonides in the same high esteem that the Ashkenazi do? The, I think that even more. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That there, there, is an, there is even a, a phenomenon today of the Maimonidian, uh, you know, sort of Maimonidian Jews that, that claim that they follow Maimonides to, uh, you know, in everything in halakha and philosophy. Uh, professor Jose Faul is one, Rabbi Professor Jose Faul is one who is really of that opinion. Um, if you want to read, he wrote a book, uh, um, Golden Dove with Silver Dots, uh, Homo Mysticus. This is, uh, yeah. But I, I have a problem with that because I usually show them that they don't, they don't follow my marriage to the letter, only the things that they like. Let's uh, <laughs> <laughs> speak and choose, yes. What part does Kabbalah play in Sephardi? Oh, um, that, that's interesting. Kabbalah, I think that, I, I mean, it, very briefly I will say this. I think that Kabbalah, uh, the flourishing of Kabbalah in Spain, was a retaliation to Maimonides because Maimonides was so logical. He, he, he drained Judaism of emotion in a way. And there was a need for something more, more vibrant, you know, with, with warmth. And that's what, what, what Kabbalah brought in. It was like a little like psychology, uh, you know, New Age mysticism. All these things were there. Um, it, took, it took a life of its own, right? Going more into the, what is called, theurgy and, and, and theosophy and understanding of God. But Rabbi Yosef Karo, who was a Kabbalist himself, kept his Kabbalistic tendencies hidden under the rug when he wrote the Shuhan Aruch. And that's how they came, they know Kabbalah influence came uh, more through the back door. Yes, Yaleh. A lot of connections. Uh, what's going on now with the Jewish community in Brooklyn or in for that matter, mm -hmm. is you have that black hat movement, yeah. which has Eshkenaz. Right. Mm -hmm. What is that? Um, that is something that I've, I've, I've been watching. Yeah, I've been watching, you know, from within, because I worked with those communities for, for about eight years. And in Brooklyn, in Deal, um, and there is... There is an interesting example of a community where it's very tight-knit and likes to, to maintain that image of that we all, we're all on the same page, but underneath there's a lot of, of unrest. So what is going to happen there in a while, there's going to be a, uh, um, a rift where the non-black hat, uh, what they call black hat uh, or ultra-Orthodox uh, rabbis will, uh, will have you know, the same following as the... Uh, they're just, it's, it's, it's about to happen. But for now, the reason that it was, you know, it was kept the way it is, is that there, besides the, the community level and the religious uh, uh, affiliation, there are, there are also a very intricate web of family connections and business connections. So uh, a, a rabbi might say to his, uh, to his congregant, if you, if you support the rabbi of the other synagogue, I will not... I will not allow you to do business with them, etc. So that, but it is slowly changing. Uh, yes. So in the context of history, there's two uh, branches of a tree. And Fifty years ago, they're put together. Mm -hmm. Now, when you have uh, uh, a different situation, yes, which is what they're talking about. Right. What do you see in the future? Good. Good question. Um, so the the. Um, 
the blending that happened in Israel uh, also is, is the... Uh, well, and here. And here, and here, is a culmination of a process that really, I think, is a process of imperialism and colonialism. That, uh, you know, the, the East and West <laughs> were always struggling. One was up, one was down. There were, you know, there were cultures developing in both places. Uh, the last encounter with the, of the West with the East happened when the East was in a really uh, a weak, uh, uh, place of weakness and uh, you know, deterioration. The Ottoman Empire was, uh, was corrupt and decadent and uh, it sort of uh, eternalized or, or, or frozen that, that, uh, that uh, mentality that the Western European is, uh, Western uh, culture is superior and it, it, it affected the religious world as well um, over 100, 150 years where people felt that the way the Ashkenazim teach Torah, or that this is the way, this is what we should follow. Even the dress code, I mean, a little bit of that. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, uniform, the black hat. Where, where did the black hat come from? It's, the, it's, it's pre-war, uh, pre-Second World War Europe. It was only a brief period that Ashkenazi yeshivot uh, demanded that dress code, but that became the the ideal. Um, so, uh, the, and added to that was the uh, the rise to power of Rabbi Yosef. He, he influenced a lot of the processes in in Israel, in America. What happened was that uh, people didn't even know that Sephardic Jews exist, and and uh, Sephardic Jews, uh, in some some cases, chose to follow Ashkenazi rabbis to blend in. I think we're now coming to a point where things are are coming out. People want to know more about the tradition, about their culture, and hopefully, what what we'll see in a, several decades from now is that those two trends will emerge. That, for me, first of all, like uh, in my synagogue, I also lead the tefillot, so I like to combine Sephardic and Ashkenazi music. And when I teach my friends who are Ashkenazi cantors, I said, you should learn the Sephardic tunes and incorporate them into your tefillah, just first to have that, that you could feel comfortable in both places. And the same with halakha. I think that that will happen. I think we're more connected now, and it's about the willingness of the people to, to do that. Yes? Question. You mentioned the and the What about Rashi? And what about what about Rashi in the Sephardic, in the Sephardic world? Uh, Rashi was uh, was and still is a venerated commentator, but uh, he did not uh, not throughout the whole Sephardic world. He had the same uh, the same level of uh, of um, uh, I would call like sacred. The people see his word as sacred or divine, as it was in the Ashkenazi world. There were, you know, fluctuations throughout the ages, but in the uh, in the Ashkenazi world, Rashi became almost identical with the text. Uh, Rashi is Torah. In the Sephardi world, not so much. They were they they were willing to uh, to you know to have disputes with him. First and foremost, Nahmanides, uh, who disagreed with him, but then you had other scholars who did write commentaries on him about his uh, uh, about his commentary. But there's no there's no denial that what the what made Rashi's commentary so popular he has a certain uh, way to present things in a style that is is provides for a fluent reading and uh, and very enjoyable, but also 
uh, have in mind that a lot of what Rashi wrote was meant for his uh, congregants in his time, very much like Rabbi Ephraim of, uh, of Regensburg, about Hasidim in the, in the uh, you're talking about the new Hasidut, not the early Hasid Ashkenaz. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, a lot of the elements of Hasidut resemble the Sephardic world, and maybe because of that, they chose to follow the Sephardic Sidu, which eventually was appropriate because it was called the Sephardic, the Hasidic Nusa is Sephard, and ours, we had to settle for the name Adota Mizra, which is a completely made up term. Um, and also, I think one of the other uh, places where you see the parallelism is music, the, the attitude of Hasidut towards music. Uh, just like the Sephardim, they were willing to adapt any tune. Whereas in the Lithuanian world, they said, if it's a non-Jewish tune, you cannot incorporate it into tefillah. Uh, and finally, I think also the element that is lost on some Hasiduyot, the element of, of serving God with joy and not, not through uh, fear, being more um, joyous about that. Uh, yes? Is there intramarriage? Where? Intermarriage, you mean it's Sephardi Ashkenazi or uh, or Jewish, not Jewish? No, no, I said intra. Uh, intra, I didn't, okay. So uh, in the Sephardic world in general, in the Sephardic world in general, there's uh, it always exists. People married Sephardi Ashkenazim, not only now, you know, for, uh, uh, for many, many generations. Um, and you have to remember also that after the uh, the expulsion, there was an you know uh, an influx of uh, Sephardic Jews into the Netherlands, into Germany as well. But in the specifically in the Syrian community, something uh, very sad happened, and that is because the Sephar the Syrian community kept pushing a ban against conversions. At a certain point, it became also not official, but a reluctance. Uh, to marry into the Ashkenazi community because they knew that the Ashkenazi community does accept converts. So, whereas in the 30s and the 40s, it was very common to have uh, Syrian Jews with Ashkenazi last name, now you don't see that much. Meaning, when I say Ashkenazi last name, the mother was a Syrian, the father was Ashkenaz, and, uh, and the kids grew up Syrian. Like I, I remember, like in one case, uh, someone with very, very uh, clear Ashkenazi name came right to my synagogue in LA. It was Silverstein or something, and we give him Aliyah, and he says Baruch like very, very uh, strong Sephardic accent. Uh, but we, we don't see it uh, today anymore. Jerry Seinfeld is one, you know, example. You know, Syrian mother, Ashkenazi father, but he went to the Ashkenazi side. <laughs> yeah, but no, but it's true. They, they, they. Uh, it's not very common today. Yes, well, yes. Could you tell us a little more about the nature of the reforms of uh, Rabbi Katzin in Aleppo, Syria, and specifically, oh. was it uh, a shift like you had in Reform Judaism in, in Germany? <coughs> it was not as. Judaism to a more universalism. Um, so, so the roots. It was maybe more like the, the, the early reform movement, you know, the time of, of Moshe Mendelssohn and, and the next generation, not what happened, not what, where it led to in the 18, 1800s. Uh, and what he wanted more than anything, he wanted to have, uh, I think it was about the services uh, being, uh, being modified, being translated, 
uh, he uh, he wasn't able to carry it out eventually, but he wanted to change something, and and they and they stopped it. If you want to read about that, uh, the person who did the research on it is Yaron Harel, uh, and the, there's a the book he wrote in uh, in English is called Between Intrigues and Revolution. Intrigues and Revolutions. It's about the the general, the position of the chief rabbi in the Ottoman Empire at that time. Um, yes. Yes, Rabbi. Yes. My own background? Yeah. So I, I think there was sort of an Iraqi Renaissance in the in the 18th, 19th century of rabbis who, uh, because of uh, several factors, you know, some of them came from Syria to Iraq, they were part of the Ottoman Empire, but also in a way uh, in contact with the British Empire, but also in contact with the Jews who moved to India. So they were they were in a cosmopolitan. Uh, some of them, Rabbi Abdallah Somech, uh, Rabbi Sadka uh, Hussein, Rabbi Yosef Haim, and my great-grandfather, Rabbi Yudaf Fetaya. And they understood the community. They were trying to provide solutions Real solutions to real problems. So, uh, uh, I, for example, when Rabbi Abdallah Sumech was asked a question from uh, India, if they could use the the water of the local system, uh, local water system, municipal uh, uh, system for the mikveh, he answered positively. When uh, Rabbi Yosef Hayim was asked whether you could ride bicycle on Shabbat, he said yes, you could ride bicycle on Shabbat. Um, when my a story about my own great grandfather. When, um, when uh, in one case, a woman came to him with a, with a, with a dire request, as my, my son, she said, uh, wants to convert to Christianity so he could serve in the British Army. He's not, he doesn't care about anything about Shabbat anymore. Uh, the rabbi said, send him to me. Tell him, to ask him if he wants to come talk to me. So he came to talk to him, and he said, uh, uh, tell me, uh, tell me about yourself. They spoke a little bit. And he said, you know, your mother's very concerned about you. Would you mind just, I, I promised her that I'll talk to you. Would you mind, uh, just for me, are you a smoker? He said, yes. So how many cigarettes do you smoke? He said, about a pack a day. He said, on Shabbat, can you smoke one less? Just one cigarette less. And the, the, the man said, okay. But the next day, uh, on Shabbat, he came, he came to the synagogue and, and came to my grandfather. He said, can I sit with you? Next to you, he said, yeah, go ahead. Uh, and then he, he told him, you know, he stayed with him the whole Shabbat, went home with him. And then he said, he told him that uh, he was about to light the first cigarette after the first Shabbat meal, Friday night. But he said, you know, the rabbi was so nice to me, not, not, didn't rebuke me, didn't yell at me. Uh, for him, I'll, I'll, I'll wait till tomorrow. And the next day he couldn't hold himself, so he came to the synagogue. Eventually decided not to convert to Christianity, and his commander respected him for that and gave him the position anyway. Um, but the point was not about reversing his, uh, you know, or anything like that. The idea was uh, not going with fire and brimstone, not, not telling someone that he's a sinner, more talking about mutual honor and respect and all that. And my grandfather, my own grandfather, when we lived in Israel, uh, I mean, I was born in Israel, and 
I remember very well when we were kids that more than once, if he would hear us saying the word Hiloni, secular, he would stop us and say, don't use this word. This word. This is the word that is used for the dichotomy, Dati Hiloni, religious secular. He said, there's no such word Hiloni, no secular. So we asked Saba, so what will we say? He said, you should say Shomer Mitzvot, observant. Because every Jew is observant, just every, each one of them chooses different mitzvot to observe. <laughs> and that's what I learned from him. I look at every person, not Jew, Jewish or not Jewish, as someone who observes some of the mitzvot, and I never know what is the full extent of his or her observance. And I think that is something that we could uh, apply to our lives. This is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much.